who we're trying to, to attract are people who will recognize the gospel and the doctrine and respond to it. And I don't think there's any tricks or any things that any 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 special methods necessary that need to happen to do that. We need to be out there reaching, asking, and those who are the elect of God will respond. And now when they respond, we need to bring them into the kingdom in a way that helps them feel loved and nurtured and, and strengthened like I did. I was surrounded. I, I gotta tell you, I was surrounded by amazing board members. I I was so loved and so helped and supported. I couldn't fail. I just couldn't fail. And it's the same way you walk into the temple. All these people standing around in white. When I talk to someone who's been to the temple for the first time, I say, you're gonna be surrounded <laughs> by people just who are there to help you. That's the Lord's strategy. He surrounds us and uh, helps us. And I think that's really, really key. It's time for another episode of the Cultural Hall. And I'm honored to be able to have uh, this guest here with us. Uh, Roger Connors is his name. Now, you hear that and you think, what, the co-author of four New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling books? Are we going to be talking about changing the culture, changing the culture, maybe in business, maybe changing the culture in the church? I bet we'll probably get a little bit of that. Uh, but he has a brand new book that's coming out. It's called Divine Patterns. Roger, thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Richard. Great to be with you. Now, uh, I need to ask you, uh, it, it, it also, as I was doing some research about you, it, it came to me that you um you were a mission president as well. So I need to know your history with uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Lifetime member? Give me a little background. So I'm a convert to the church. I joined the church when I was 18. I was a very inquisitive young man. I think about 16, I started really getting into backpacking and into the mountains. And I started looking at all this going, okay, how did all this come about? And uh, I started asking questions. So I, I began reading a, it was a New York Times bestselling book at the time called Chariots of the Gods. Hmm. And it was about ancient astronauts coming to the earth. And I was, okay. I was like, okay, I'm finding answers. This is great. And I was walking to school one day with a friend of mine, uh, who's a member of the church, sharing some of this with him. And he says, oh, that's not right. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, <laughs> I can, I can tell you where we came from. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is the guy I played football with on the street. He doesn't know anything. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, you know, we were both, what, 16, 17 at the time. And then he started sharing with me the plan of salvation. And the moment I heard it, it was like a memory restored. And uh, that's how it all started. That's a pretty brave move for a 16, 17-year-old kid. Uh, you hear it, and obviously life-altering in, in a lot of ways, especially as you look back on it. You come home to mom and dad and say, yeah, you know, buddy who I play football with says, this is where we came from, this is where we're going, and I think I'm on board. Was that pretty well-received? Well, so my I got to explain my family's a little different. My dad is an Episcopalian, my mom's a Presbyterian, my sister's a Lutheran minister, and so is her husband, and my brother's a surfer. <laughs> so everybody in our family has like this different view of life. But when I came back and mentioned uh, the Mormon church to my mom, she about blew a gasket. Mm -hmm. And my parents just essentially told me, if you if you pursue this, we're going we're gonna to make you leave the house. We'll have nothing to do with you ever again. Mm. You will be disowned. Mm. And that was the, that was a reaction I came home to. Mm. How, how do you walk through that? I think uh, 
within the church, I think the narrative has sort of changed. Like we used to, we used to look at those that would do that and sort of honor that, you know, they chose the gospel over their family. And I think in, in most recent years, we're, we're changing the narrative to be like, no, we don't need to choose our family over the, or the gospel over our family or our family over the gospel and trying to have them all be interwoven. Walk me through. So what happened? Yeah, I mean, I that was essentially what happened to me. I had a choice, you know, that they basically faced me, had me face a choice. I remember when I started reading the Book of Mormon, I had uh, this is back when the church was really clever about some of the marketing around the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. So I had this gold plate Book of Mormon. I don't know if you remember ever seeing <laughs> of that. course, of Reformed course, Egyptian writing on it. Yep. And I'm sitting in my living room. You can't miss it, right? So I'm sitting yeah. on my living room floor reading this book. My mom walks in and she's like, "What are you reading?" And I said, "Well, I'm I'm reading the Book of Mormon." And she just looked at me and marched over, grabbed the copy out of my hand and said, no, you're not. And she walked out of the room. So the next day I show back up with the blue one with the angel bro and I blowing his horn on the front. Uh-huh. And you can't miss it. They're much more uh, uh, harder to harder to see now with the, the plain blue cover. Mm-hmm. But so I'm, I'm reading this, this copy of the Book of Mormon. She walks in again. She says, what are you doing now? I said, well, I'm reading the Book of Mormon. And it looked totally different to her. Uh-huh. She's like, what? And she grabbed it, took it out of my hand, and walked out of the room. She did that with 12 copies of the wow. Book of Mormon. Wow. I, I finally had to resort to uh, a method that I had used where I'd go out in the backyard, sitting in the sun, and I had my favorite magazine, Backpacker Magazine. Uh-huh. And I would put that over the top of the Book of Mormon when she came by, and then I would switch it. And I kid with people that, you know, I had to switch it so much that I have a testimony of both Backpacker Magazine and the Book of Mormon. <laughs> I know they're both true. <laughs> And Nephi went into the hills with his REI backpack. Wait a minute. I might have I might have conflated the two stories here. Hang on. Uh so so, so they came around eventually. You joined the church and said, no family. I this is the path that I go. Where where does this end? Well, when I walked into the kitchen one day, I had to wait till I was 18. They wouldn't give me permission. Mm-hmm. And uh I actually it was funny because I knew I would probably be thrown out of the house. And uh, one of the members of the stake presidency in our stake actually offered for me to come live with them if that happened. Mm-hmm. And funny, who would have thought 30 years later, I would have been his grandson's mission president. Oh, wow. So when Elder Durrance came into the mission, the first thing I said to him is, look, Elder Durrance, if your companions kick you out of your apartment, you can come live with me. I'll return <laughs> the favors to your, your grandfather. But uh, I announced to my mom, she and she is the sweetest lady. You would mm-hmm. think she'd been a member of the church all of her life. She's just a sweet woman. But she was cooking a big pot of chili on the stove when I walked into the room and said, hey, I'm going to, mom, I've decided to join the church. She was so upset. She took that lid and threw it at me like a Frisbee. I dove for the ground. It landed on the table and, and behind me, crashed on the table. I stood up and not being a very smart 17-year-old said, well, then you're invited to the baptism. And you know, so <laughs> when I came home, I thought I would see my my suitcase on the you know the porch, the front porch, and it wasn't there. And I I came through the side of the house, the side door, and walked up the stairs. She can't sneak up our stairs, so my parents heard me and mm-hmm. called me into the room in the dark of the night. My dad said, "So did you do it?" And he said, "Did you join the Mormon Church?" And I said, "Yeah, I did." And he said, "Well, you can stay under one condition." And I said, "Well, what's that? You could have nothing to do with them ever again." Yeah. <laughs> I said, well, dad, I, I'm just beginning this journey. And finally, about after uh, three or four minutes of silence, they said, well, you can stay. So I was able to stay at my home. I, anytime they wanted coffee or tea, I was their nominee to pour it. 
mm-hmm. and uh, and then left on my mission about a year later. Wow. And it, so from, you know, not only just joining, but then going out and being able to spread the message. Is it something uh, I know that people listening to this are like, did did they come around? Were they eventually open? Did they, you know, never speak to you again? What, walk out the rest of, of the relationship with them. Well, you know, they they uh, softened a bit towards some of their feelings about the church. Mm-hmm. Some of the things they learned, they realized were wrong. They mm-hmm. as they watched my life and my wife and my children. And so, what, are you talking about some of those things like that we hear? You know, the the sort of offbeat things that that people will say. Well, I heard the Mormons do oh. sacrifices. Those kind of things. Yeah, they, the truth came out. Right. I mean, they heard all the all the uh, anti stuff from my sister, who's a Lutheran minister, because they get trained on that. Right. And so they were pretty well informed uh, in that regard. But what countered that it wasn't it wasn't so much doctrine. It was life. You know, they could see I was a good husband, a good father, mm-hmm. um, a good man, you know, just, you know, not not a great man, just a good man. Yeah. And someone who engaged in my community and was honest and had a career. And, and I remember we took him to Disneyland one trip uh, just a few years before my father died. And we sat, my wife and I uh, had the children somewhere else. We sat down with them and and I said to my parents, you've watched my life now for 25 years. Mm-hmm. You've seen how we've lived. Can you not say this is good? And uh, it was, it was just a really great moment because my mom leaned in, who was the one who was more ardent. And she said, no, we, we know this is a good thing. And that's probably about as close as I got. I remember my father on his deathbed. I was laying down with him and it was about a day and a half before he passed. And he was so afraid of dying. Mm. Um, And I remember just sitting there and asking my father, would you like me to tell you what I believe happens when you die? And uh, he just started crying and said, yes, please do that. And so I taught him about the plan of salvation and and that there was hope. And I don't know what where that ended up, but I believe my my genealogy work opened up after he left. I think he's on the other side doing a good work. Hmm. I appreciate you sharing such a such a tender moment um, with us. That's 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 impactful. Uh, I I love being able to um, to hear the strength of of those that have converted. Uh, to the church and also those that are, are lifelong members to be able to get kind of a, a grasp on who they are and where they came from. You, within that story, also introduced, obviously, that you're married, and I presume that you have kids of your own. Tell me a little bit about your family now as it stands. So I have I have five children and t- 10 amazing grandchildren. Yeah. Aren't they the best? Oh, my goodness. Who, who How, if I'd only known. <laughs> I would have had a lot more children, so I'd had a lot more grandchildren. <laughs> And uh, you, uh, you are a professor at uh, Utah Valley University, as I well, understand. It. I do some, I do some adjunct work there. I teach, teach at the MBA school. They're uh, developing teams and individuals, managers from time to time. And do then you of- also do late leadership training and culture change. Let's go into that because you are, uh, as Wikipedia would tell me, Roger, you are <laughs> a cult- right. You are, yeah, exactly. It's got to be spot on, right? You are. Uh, one of the top culture gurus, and they use the word guru in your Wikipedia, <laughs> in the world. What's all that about? Well, I had a career uh, in uh, cultural transformation and leadership training and coaching. And uh, it was just a blast. It was the most fun. Uh, you walk into an organization and organizations are trying to create change. Mm-hmm. And they want it, they need to do it quickly. 
because mm -hmm. time's important. And they might be thinking, how do I get 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 people to think differently, like super fast? How do, how do we do that? And that's where we would come in and help them create cultural transformational change with the way people think and act in an organization. Give me an idea what you mean. Like what, what, what's a change, uh, an everyday sort of change that you would see most often as you walked into these companies and needed to change? It could be in a manufacturing nuclear power environment. It could be safety. You know, we need everyone to be thinking safety. We, I remember walking in. In fact, I don't think you remember what Three Mile Island is. It's a sure. nuclear power plant on the East Coast. That's one of my first consulting projects. Right after the accident, uh, we went in to look at what were the cultural dynamics of what led to a near meltdown in this nuclear power plant. We asked, uh, and this wasn't necessarily in this place, but in, in a nuclear power plant, as an example, we asked the question of, of this group of maybe 50 leaders in the room, who's accountable for safety here? Nobody raised their hand except one guy in the back. And we said, well, what's your job? He says, well, I'm the safety manager. Said, okay. <laughs> we said, group, what's the cultural change that needs to happen here? When I ask the question, who's accountable for safety? Every hand ought to go up. Mm -hmm. In fact, companies like ExxonMobil, they would give stop work rights authority to people like me, a consultant who walked onto the site. If I saw something that wasn't right, I could stop work. And right. I wasn't even a part of the organization. So it's a mentality of, of trying to help people think differently about what they do. Another one might be customer service. You walk into a, a big retailer and you know, you're trying to get people, the, the associates, on the floor to engage. I remember one time I walked into uh, the sporting goods store and I was looking for a pair of tennis shoes. And I walked in, I only had like five minutes between meetings. Mm -hmm. So I, I walk in and it's this big box store and I'm like, I have no idea where the tennis shoes are. So I finally figure out, okay, which part of the store do I walk to? As I'm walking up there and now I've only got four minutes, I'm like, okay, I gotta get in and see these tennis shoes. And so there's this, there's this associate, probably part-time worker being paid below minimum wage, you know. Right working at an end cap, stocking this end cap. And uh, he stops what he's doing and he walks over to me and he says, can I help you? And I'm, that's, that's a shock to me. Like, when does that happen? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, I need to get these tennis shoes, but no, don't bother me. I'm good. I, I'll just, I'll just take care of it. I'm going to be real fast. So, so I'm still standing there and he walks away and now I'm trying to figure out where are the walking shoes? That's what I was looking for. Uh -huh. And then he, he, and he says, so, what are you looking for? I shouted out walking shoes. He says, okay, over there, right over there in the back. So he started helping me, right? So I walk over to the walking shoes. There's this huge wall of walking shoes. There's like there's like 30 types of walking shoes. This is back in the day, back in the 80s, right? When you do walking shoes or 90s, yeah. whatever it was. <laughs> and so I'm looking at this wall of walking shoes and I'm in total confusion. I'm like, how am I going to get to the fat, to the right ones quick? And all of a sudden I hear behind my shoulder, can I help you? <laughs> it's the same associate. He walks up to me and he's, he's like, what can I do to help you? And I'm like, well, what are your best walking shoes? And he goes, well, it'd be those ones right there. And so I'm like, awesome. Thank you. He says, can I help you anymore? He said, I said, no, I'm good. So I grabbed the shoes and you know how they have the boxes that you find your own sizes. Oh, sure. So now I'm, now I'm shopping the sizes and that's total mayhem. And then I hear his voice one more time. He says, let me help you. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, he says, what's your size? It's 10 and a half. So he comes out with these two boxes of 10 and a half under his shoulders, two different colors sits down and somehow he inserted a, a comfort sole into the shoe before I put it on. I'm like, man, these are like great shoes. I'm hearing angels speak to me from heaven. I mean, this is, these are awesome. Uh -huh. And he says, well, I put this sole on it for you. As I'm walking away from the department, this associate standing there waving goodbye. I've got two boxes of tennis shoes under my arms. I have the soles. I've made it in time. 
checked out. And I've told that story everywhere I go to managers and leaders about what culture change looks like. Yeah. Because everyone's trying to get the associate at the floor to look and be like that, to be invested, be engaged. He re-engaged me like five times. It was crazy. That's what culture does. It drives the way we think and act. And uh, in an organization, it's powerful. I want to take a break real quick, and I want to pick it right back up here. We'll come back in the second block of the Cultural Hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. If you've ever thought about starting a podcast and, well, you just don't know what to do, I would encourage you to reach out to me. Now, I am at Richie T. Stedman on all the social medias. You can find and follow me there. Uh, you can also send me an email, richietstedman at gmail.com, if you'd like to know more about what uh, I do as far as being a podcast coach and consultant. But let me just say this. May I say this? Almost 600 episodes under my belt, I could certainly be able to help you. Now, let me say this as well. I know a lot of you are thinking, well, listen, I yeah, I don't know that I'm ever going to get thousands of followers. Here's the best part about podcasts. Sometimes they can just be for fun. Other times they can be for really small niche audiences and you can make a truck ton of money. We can talk about it, how you could do it if you would like. You can reach out to me at Richie T. Stedman, wherever you find me, or certainly if you send me a message at the Cultural Hall, I'll be able to answer it there as well. Have you, have you considered starting a podcast? Reach out to me. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall. You can go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. Uh, you get to be a part of the secret but not sacred Facebook group uh, where all the Patreon saints are hanging out. And it's as little as $5 a month if you want to show your monetary support. Patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. Now, Roger, as you're talking about culture change, uh, one of the things that, that uh, stuck in my mind is how we are constantly, it seems, uh, and maybe this is a little bit more in Utah, but maybe not, where we're saying, oh no, that's just the that's just the culture of the church. That's not the doctrine. You need to you need to focus on the doctrine and and people within the the church, that's the culture, and, and we we need to give a pass to that. I would love if you would be willing to speak into it, how we might be able to change some of the culture within the church. I mean, you're talking about big organizations. That's 16 million strong who have done things the same way for years and years and years. And so much of that needs to be changed um, to be more welcoming to people, to be, in some ways, I think, more loving to people. Maybe I'm taking uh, big generalized statements, but I would love to know how you feel like we could make a cultural shift within the church. You know, that that can be complicated, but it, thinking about it really isn't. Uh, what we're really talking about is changing the way people act. Mm -hmm. And the way you change people act is you have to first change how they think. And our, our beliefs, the way we think is based upon the experiences that we have. Okay. So a simple model is change the experiences people have that causes them to 
think differently, and then they act differently. You know, one of the one of the big changes I'm so anxious to see is the way we teach lessons in church. And then, you know, the church has been working on this for a long time. Mm-hmm. Shifting from stand and deliver to and lecturing mm-hmm. to being engaged, interactive, lots of questions, lots of dialogue. It's a big cultural shift. It's 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 not just a teaching skill. It's a it's a culture shift in the way we think about learning. It's in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how do you how do you make that happen? And I think the church has tried tried really hard by creating experiences with them. Miller Holland uh, demonstrated how to do that in one of the the training videos. You know, and their mm-hmm. uh, "Come Follow Me" has been a huge effort to kind of shift the way people think about that. And I. I would say that's been one of the more effective uh, approaches I've seen in the last few years. So everybody's thinking, come follow me. They're thinking about how do I do this differently? Uh, it's a good example of, of a real effort to, to shift beliefs. The other one that I think has uh, effectively shifted is the way we think about return missionaries who come home early from their mission. Yeah, I think we used to used to be a real stigma around that. And I think we're shifting more to it, the way we think about it. It's it's your mission. Every mission is unique, however long that is or what your circumstances are. So instead of going from this, what we considered an ideal mission, this is what it looked like. The ideal mission is now you serving your mission. And, you know, these these COVID missionaries, these missionaries that served yeah. during COVID, yeah. asking, where'd you serve? <laughs> They're like, well, I was in L.A. and then I was in Argentina and then I was back home and then yep. I went back to L.A. and then I finally finished in Argentina. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I came home on a medical release as a mission president. I was about three months, two to three months before ending my mission and was diagnosed with a stage four lymphoma, not Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer. Oh, geez. And, uh, you know, we all have our own unique mission, but. Those are those are valid, legitimate experiences that the Lord honors and uh, accepts. And I guess been a great shift in the way the membership at large thinks about, you know, missionaries and return missions. I appreciate you highlighting that because that is something that if you look just in the last decade, we have done. I mean, there's still work to be done around it for sure. But that shift from yeah, it, it your your mission is uniquely yours. I like that. That sometimes because it it feels like such a machine, it seems like it's so hard to move. And man, are we ever going to change any of these things about anything? But that is one where you can see some traction, where you can see some movement in a positive direction. I have to think um, you with you being the mission president of the Kennewick Washington Mission. Is that correct? That's right. I I I have to imagine that you were just like my own little creative pool for all of the, you know, <laughs> like in, in a way, maybe other people wouldn't have felt that you were just like my creative laboratory for being able to change the way we do this. Is that how you embraced being able to do that? And I don't mean that in any sort of like wily or manipulative yeah. way, but I, but I have to think that there was a unique, um, just love for that creative opportunity with those missionaries. That's a really great uh, question. I think I'd answer it in two ways. One was, I've always tried to create a firewall between my involvement in the church and what I do at work. Uh-huh. Like, I'm not called to a position to be a culture change expert. Uh-huh. And so, but it influences me, right? Yeah. So I know that experiences drive beliefs. And when I my when my second week in the mission field, I knew I needed to create a different experience for these missionaries, just given some circumstances. Mm-hmm. So I traveled the mission for a week. I took my sleeping bag with me 
And I met with a set of missionaries in the morning, in the in the mid mid morning at lunchtime, and two in the afternoon, and then one in the evening. And I so I just traveled the mission. I'd sleep on their floors with, in a sleeping bag. I would do the call-ins at night, you know, and when missionaries got, hey, this is President Connors, like what? Who? I was talking to talk to my district leader. And that week was so impactful because all the missionaries said something's really different. Like the last time a missionary mission president slept in a sleeping bag on my floor was like never. Mm-hmm. And uh, it allowed me to have an early opportunity to really impact some of the shape, some of the beliefs the missionaries held. But in, but and when I first went out, the, we didn't have preach my gospel per se. It was being drafted, mm-hmm. and so you had to develop all your own proselyting approaches and things. And everybody did it. And everybody had a notebook. And finally, the draft. I, when we went out, we took a draft with us, and we also had our notebook. And then finally, it occurred to me: <laughs> the brethren don't want us having a notebook. They mm-hmm. preach my gospel is what they want us doing. So I said, how am I going to change everyone's mind about this in the mission? So I had a zone conference where I had everyone sit in a square and there's a trash barrel in the middle of the square and everyone brought their, their mission binder. And I said, elders, there's going to be a change. We're going to be a preach my gospel mission. So what we're going to do is we're going to put our binders in the trash barrel in the middle of this room. And that phase is over and we're starting something new. And so we all put our, and that was so hard because we were all so invested in it. Yeah. Through our trash, through our binders in the trash barrel. And, you know, had new copies of Preach My Gospel. And, and that's how we made the transition. Ooh, that is, that is, it's interesting. That seems like such a, such a, a, a drastic thing. But in so many ways, when we talk about change, we really just have to adopt and adapt to the new change, trying to hold on to a little bit of this and the way that we kind of did this and move into the future. Is it that much easier, that much more impactful if we just are able to stop and then and then move into a new thing? It, it, what's impactful is when you create these experiences that truly change beliefs. And all, all, all experiences have to be interpreted. No one ever walks away with the interpretation of what you do without you trying to help shape that, right? Because mm-hmm. because you could be sitting there going, the mission president's nuts. You know, he's <laughs> he must be on Valium or something. Yeah. Or, um, you know... Uh, this 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 negates everything we've ever done up to this point. Like this is he's saying this is trash. Mm-hmm. You know what what is the experience we're creating? So the experience I created for them is we follow the prophet. Wow, and that's how I interpreted it. That we are following the prophet, and this is the change we want to make. Now I had a couple say, "Well, I'd like to keep my binder." As a, I said, "Sure, you can keep your binder and take it home with you." But but the 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 message was clear and it, it worked great. I mean, it, it, the, the impact was significant. We all started using Preach My Gospel. It was, it was an amazing experience. Uh, being able to uniquely see that transformation from sort of one mode to another, what do you think the significance of the Preach My Gospel pattern of teaching is compared to, like I served in the days of, uh, we believe in a in a supreme being. Most people call him God, even though we may call him by different names. And, you know, then the second discussion and third discussion where it was memorized by rote. What's the advantage for these missionaries now being able to use the Preach My Gospel and teaching in that way? Well, you know, there were trade-offs. Back when we memorized our lessons, you know, we kind of knew what we were going to say, right? Uh-huh. And I, for one, felt like I taught with the spirit with a memorized lesson. I, sure. I made adaptions and adjustments. So it wasn't that we didn't have the spirit in that environment. But today, you have to really know the doctrine to be able to teach it. And I think that's what we're really trying to do. We're trying to convert missionaries first. And that conversion of missionaries is what's mostly key. 
And then once you're converted, you can go out and strengthen others, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's the big transition is, is getting the gospel, the doctrine into the hearts of individuals, starting with the missionary. I think that's really the target for Preach My Gospel. Hmm. You know, I'm I'm also curious, because uh, it, it's probably every month headlines you see um, the idea that, you know, the youth of today, not necessarily within the church, in fact, m- more without the church, are not being parts of, of organized religions, are not, you know, are leaving organized religions. And I think that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we maybe do a little bit better job. Uh, at retaining youth, but still, you know, there is a, there is a generation that is being raised saying no thanks, or, you know, maybe a little bit, uh, I'm eventually out for, for one reason or another. What, what is the cultural change within, um, I guess within, within the culture of the church as we engage those that are younger, that, that, that struggle with different parts of the church or, or, or I guess better asked, like, what can we do to be able to reach out to those that that struggle to be able to help them along and, and to be able to remain within the church? Or can we even impact something like that? Well, I think uh, there was a the church did a recent study with, for example, the young single adults uh-huh. really looking at that demographic. And I serve in Provo in that environment. And uh, one of the things they said is that leaders are that the, some some of the some of the input that came out of the survey is that leaders are not willing to engage in open conversation about challenging topics. Mm-hmm. So I think I think what they're looking for is we want an honest conversation about this issue, and uh, and so we're we're making a real effort to to be that way and do that. I think that's part of what they're looking for. But you have to remember, for in at least in my mind, the targets never changed. We are after what's called in the scriptures, the elect of God. Mm-hmm. Those who in the pre-earth life had a predisposition towards wanting to live the gospel and receive it. That's like what we're, that, that is the target. Mm-hmm. It's not everybody. We're not going to, we're not going to gather everyone. We're going to gather those in Israel who are predisposed to want to be a part of that because of their, with how they live their life in the pre-earth life. So I don't know that the methods are good because they help us extend our reach. Sure. But who we're trying to to attract are people who will recognize the gospel and the doctrine and respond to it. And I don't think there's any tricks or any things that any 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 special methods necessary that need to happen to do that. We need to be out there reaching, asking, and those who are the elect of God will respond. And now when they respond, we need to bring them into the kingdom in a way that helps them feel loved and nurtured and and strengthened like I did. I was surrounded. I got to tell you, I was surrounded by amazing ward members. I I was so loved and so helped and supported. I couldn't fail. I just couldn't fail. And it's the same way you walk into the temple. All these people standing around in white. When I talk to Mm -hmm. someone who's been to the temple for the first time, I say, you're going to be surrounded (laughs) by people just who are there to help you. That's the Lord's strategy. He surrounds us and uh, helps us. And I think that's really, really key. For those that, I mean, they hear you say, yeah, we need to engage in difficult conversations. I think that's a hard thing, um, certainly for everyone. But for for us within the church, I think, I don't know, it's a thing that we know how to do very well. 
uh, as leaders, I don't know that we know how to engage in those uh, those conversations. With the experience that you have had, how how do you walk into, you know, I, I'm I'm open and willing to have a, a challenging conversation that doesn't seem too confrontational, or you know, we sort of fear contention because it's of the devil. All these things that we sort of put on it. How how do you personally engage in these? difficult conversations with people to be able to help them. Well, I serve with a man whose name is Greg Jackson. He's our state president down there. And this guy is fearless. Mm-hmm. He will walk into, he'll walk into an apartment of, I don't know, 10 young single adults. And he'll just ask, what question do you have? Ask me any question. I don't care what it is. Just ask that question. Of course, nothing happens at first, right? Mm-hmm. Then a question will come out. And it's just, it's just a, it's just an honest engagement appreciating the question, being honest in the answer, and then asking more questions. I think I think sometimes as leaders, we're afraid to begin the conversation because we're not sure how to answer the questions. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important we understand that if we don't know the answer or we're not sure, we just say that. You know, that's a really good question. I'm not I'm not sure I know the answer to that one. Let me let me research that and get back to you. You know, mission presidents, that that is what they do all day long. Yeah. <laughs> when they when you do interviews, like you you'll interview your whole mission, you know when your missionaries come, they're coming with their questions. Mm-hmm. I learned more about, you know, anti-Mormon doctrine, you know, in being a mission president, because I was constantly being asked, well, what's this about DNA in the Book of Mormon? Or what's this about Joseph Smith having more than one story narrative about the first vision? What's this about, you know, and you, you really had to bone up and you prepare yourself. And a lot of times I didn't, I didn't even heard of some of these things. Mm-hmm. I would just tell the missionary, you know what, th- this is going to be really interesting to study together. I'm going to go back and learn about it. And then we come back. Let's talk about what I learned. Is that how you engage the conversations is like, let's learn about this together on something that you didn't know where you would say, Hey, you know what? I don't know. You don't know. Let's figure it out. And then have those sort of follow-ups. That's, that's tremendously powerful. Not afraid of the answer. I know, I know there's not going to be an answer that I'm going to be afraid of. So happy to, happy to do that anytime. I love it. Uh, Let's take another break. uh, And then when we come back, You know, Roger Connors has a new book out with Deseret Book. We're going to get into the subject matter of what that is uh, and how you might be able to pick it up. We'll come back and do that in the third block of the Cultural Hall. Hi, friends. Dan, the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. It's breaking news. Windows 11 is now here. It's fast and it's beautiful. So let's make sure your computer is ready to run it. Bring your PC into any PC Laptops right now at PCLaptops.com. PCLaptops.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can always send us an email, contact at theculturalhall.com. That is the email address. That email uh, inbox never closes. So if you are awakened in the middle of the night and think, man, I was so impressed by something that Roger said within this episode, I need to send this email right now. You can do it and I'm not going to read it in the middle of the night. I'll just read it when I get up in the morning, but you can always send that email. You can also send us guests that you feel like will be great suggestions, uh, people to visit with or topics uh, as well. Contact at theculturalhall.com. Now, Roger, tell me about the book Divine Patterns. This is uh, something that's coming out with the, with Deseret Book, and, and I would be curious to know what patterns are we talking about? And I, I feel like I probably know what divine we're talking about. Well, this has been a really fun uh, process for me. I, of course, I'm, I'm a business book author and spent a lot of time uh, ferreting out patterns and mental models in the business world context and shaping human behavior. Mm-hmm. So being able to do this in the spiritual realm was just, was just a blast. 
you know, at patterns, the, the whole idea of patterns is they help us understand what to do. It's like a mental model. And it's good to have those. Like when I went with my MBA students, I say there's really only about seven mental models you need to know to be an effective leader. And if you can master those in every circumstance, you'll have a way to think about what to do. Hmm. And I think in the scriptures, we've discovered these same kinds of mental models or patterns about how we can go about doing things. Um, just in a quick example of a pattern, my little grandson, he was about three or something at the time. And he was, he was trying to put on his pants, but he had his shoes on and he started <laughs> crying for help. He's like, this isn't working. That's a really good pattern. Mm-hmm. You know, pants before shoes, mm-hmm. right? That's a good pattern. Look before you leak, think, think before you speak, say mm-hmm. before you spend. These are all patterns. We see those same kind of patterns in the scriptures, you know, faith precedes the miracle, seek before you find. Uh, the brethren have taught true doctrine changes behavior, you know, true doctrine, then, then behavior change. Inspired questions lead to inspired answers. There's all these kind of mental models and patterns about how God wants us to think about approaching him. And the scriptures are filled with them. So I, I selected 25 patterns that I thought were representative of some key mental models about how we should think about things and uh, share those in the book and how we how we use those to our advantage to obtain blessings from heaven. So you walked out some of the probably more uh, well-known, I guess, you know, seeking you shall find, or uh, I would be curious if you could walk it out for us, maybe one of the lesser known patterns um, that is highlight, highlighted, highlighting. I, I'm not sure the way to All say those that. Things yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is uh featured. There we go. We'll go with that word uh, within the book. Some, something that maybe we don't recognize as a pattern, but very much is and, and what we can do to grow our testimony through that pattern. You know, the, I, I would say probably all the patterns are things that everyone's familiar with. Okay. But we, we tend to sometimes look beyond the mark on those. And maybe miss the simplicity and the beauty and the power of the pattern. I would, you know, I'll, I'll just take the simplest one, actually, kind of the opposite of what you just described. If you love me, keep my commandments. Mm-hmm. But such a basic pattern, right? But how powerful is it to understand the motivation of love and to look at our own motivations and ask, well, what's really driving me? Is it the love of God? Because the love of God, when it is the when it is the essence of the basic of of what we're doing and how we're doing it, so many things fall into place. But when when our motivations are mixed or blended or aren't pure, we we go well beyond the mark. So I spend time talking about the that notion, how that motivate being motivated by love, loving God, and, and then keeping His commandments leads to blessings from heaven. How do you kind of check that? That seems like a, a thing that maybe. Because I'm a little dim, Roger. Let's be honest with one another. I, you know, uh, the light bulbs are on, but maybe they're not hundred watt. We're we're going doing a good sixty watt. Um, like I I I sort of think, yeah, you know, I'm doing this. I I'm doing this because I love God. Uh, like, what's that sort of self check or that or how can we, you know, really be sure that our intentions are pure? How do, how do we know that? Or what kind of things can we ask ourselves or or try and determine to know if if we if we love God, then we're, then we're following. It's a, it's a really good question. And I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I have the best answer for it, but one of my answers would be to when to d- discover how you handle being offended, how you handle uh, 
someone harming you, how you handle your feelings about all of that. I remember one time I was walking out of the temple locker room. So I was in my, I was just finished an endowment session uh-huh. and I was coming out of the locker. And when I opened the door, there was a brother standing there and he said, you have to be the slowest person in the world that I've ever seen. And I'm like, so I'm thinking, oh, wait, we just got out of an endowment session in the temple and this is happening. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I didn't have a response. I just walked away. But as I walked away, I thought, you know, so how do I feel about that? And how quickly can I shape my feelings to not be offended by it? Because there are probably those in the church who never come back to the temple again after a situation like that. Sure. But you know what? It's, it's really inspecting yourself and saying, I'm filled with the love of God. I love that brother. He's having a bad day. Who knows what's going on for him? I'll bet there's a story behind that. I'll bet if I'll bet if I sit down and talk to him, I'd hear that, you know, there's some real challenges that he's facing and he's in the temple trying to, to help with that. That's how I'm going to see that and think about that. So I think I think that motivation that it's not that I love just love him. I love God. I love my father in heaven and I know how he'd want me to feel about that. So then I got to push. How did you feel about that? So did you walk away? Because as I walk in in your shoes within that, I think I probably would do the same because I'm pretty non-confrontational. I'd be like, what is even happening right now? And then as I walk away, I I fear that my thing would be I'd stew and be like, you know what I should have (laughs) said? You know how I could have got him there? And then I would have been all sorts of fussy like a baby and been like, and then I probably would have come to that sort of piece of like, yeah, I don't know what he was, you know, I, well, it was, it was, it was the first time in my life, life I've been accused of being slow at anything. So uh-huh. I had to mark that one up to that's interesting. Uh-huh. And, and I did think, I wish I had a smarter, clever response to him, you know, slow is good, or I don't know what, you know, yeah, yeah. Some, some clever response, but, and then I, I, I told my life, you're never going to believe what happened at the temple. Then one reaction was, I'm so glad I wasn't someone else who would have been offended by that. Sure. And, uh, and then another reaction I had was, you know what? I know how the Lord wants me to feel about this. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want me to take offense. And the love of God will drive my response to that. I've loved so much of the conversation that we have, uh, that we've had today. And I, and I encourage people, and there will be a link in the show notes to where uh, people can be able to purchase um, Divine Patterns. Uh, it's from Desert Book and author, obviously, Roger Connor. She'll be able to pick it up in the store and online and all that stuff. But we'll provide a link within the show notes of this episode. Uh, I love what you do professionally and am looking forward to having the opportunity to read this book. I, I am I am curious. One thing that you said uh, has has sort of struck me, and I want to circle back around to it. You said you try not to bring your professional um you know, the things that you do professionally into your, um, you know, like your callings, your, your, uh, that, but, but then you also mentioned, but of course it informs, you know, who you are and where you come from. What, why make that distinction? Why make that separation? Um, why not have them blended? I I guess in my mind, when I think about those things, I think, well, God created me in this particular way with these particular strengths and would have me to bring all of that into, into that space. Or, or maybe I'm just misunderstanding the way that you intended that. No, you're not. I, 
I, uh, I just feel strongly that we're being led by prophets and apostles who are providing inspired direction through the programs of the church. And uh, I don't need to compete with it. I don't have a smarter way to do it. Huh. Um, and, and so I want to deliver those things as best I can. But, but I'm not afraid to tell someone, hey, your experiences drive your beliefs, your beliefs shape your behavior in, mm -hmm. in the right settings. But I'm not presenting my models and teaching my principles and doing those kinds of things. I think when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the, the uh, patterns of heaven, that, you know, that's where the power is. I, if I could just share a quick story. Please. Um, I remember coming home as a as a re recently returned missionary, a new convert, you know, and I didn't come home to lots of people I knew because yeah. I was, you know, only in the church a year. So I get home in Southern California and things are going okay. They're going fine. But, you know, I'm still at my, my parents' home are a bit antagonistic and, you know, there's limited numbers of friends. And I got in, in, enrolled into BYU in night school. So, um, but I decided not to go. And finally I was talking with my bishop and he said, Roger, you should, you should go. Why aren't you doing this? And I thought, you know, he's right. I should do it. So a week before school, I loaded up my little Opal. That's a car. And it had a uh, windshield broken out. So I had plastic tape in the windshield. I had yeah, you a did. gum wrapper holding up the, the rear view mirror. And I put the a couple things I owned in there. And I said, I'm I'm off. I had I had no idea. I didn't know anyone up in Provo. I had no idea where I was going to go, where I'd live, nothing. Jumped in the car, did the 650-mile drive. I show up at the intersection of 900 East and uh, center street and i'm sitting there it's about seven o'clock at night and i'm thinking to myself okay what do i do and before i left I, I told my father in heaven i'm putting it in his hands he promised his return missionaries would be blessed mm -hmm. that they'd be taken care of and including where you would stay mm -hmm. and i said i need that blessing so i'm sitting at that intersection and something says Go to that little apartment square over there. And there's a little apartment complex. It was called Fairmount Square at the time. It's still there. So I pulled over to this apartment complex, knocked on the door. Manager comes to the door. What do you need? So I need a place to stay. She's like, man, school starts in a week. You didn't plan ahead, did you? And she kind of was working <laughs> me over. I'm like, what's, this going, what's going on with this? She says, I have one bed left in the apartment complex. If you want it, you can have it. But the roommates there have to agree. And so as I'm walking down the hallway, I'm thinking, roommates, hadn't thought of that before. Yeah. <laughs> Wonder what, what I'm getting into there. So I knock on the door, and the door opens, and standing on the other side of the door were three former missionaries from my mission, the Georgia Atlanta mission that I served with. Wow. And I said, they said, what are you doing here, Elder Connors? And I said, uh, Elder Duffman, I need a place to stay. They said, well, you found it. Huh. And so I brought my bags in and stayed there. And if you follow the story... I went from Southern California, 650 miles to one apartment, one door, and one bed. And my heavenly father brought me there. The power of the promises of God when you follow the patterns are amazing. And that's what I hope people feel. And there's some who feel disenfranchised. They feel like God has let them down. They're, on, they're not on plan A anymore. They're on plan C, and it's not working out. The promises aren't coming to pass. And my message to anyone feeling that way is, Stay with it. There's an explanation for it, and God will bless you and help you. Yeah, that's a that's a wow, a, an inspirational story for sure, and a promise. Uh, you know that if we can take the opportunity and look at at where God has blessed us, we know. But sometimes in that in that time where we feel like it should have been one way and it ended up being a different way, it's real easy to be like, "Whoa, 
I guess he he I guess he forgot about me. I guess he didn't really mean it. Um, I can I can remember, you know, I, I was married before I, I'm married currently, and and I remember before getting married that first time and and thinking, oh, you know, this is God telling me that this is the thing to do to marry this first person, and and it was a horrible uh, marriage. And I remember getting on the other side of that and and being divorced and going, what what's the deal? Why did we do that? Why did why was that the thing? And then being able to look in and back on it in the years past and being able to see the things that I gained from it, the things that I learned from it. But at the time, man, I don't I don't want to say angry with God, but maybe real, real mad uh, thinking that uh, that I was forgotten or the plan C or the plan D or, you know, I felt like I was playing like G. I was a little <laughs> further down in the alphabet than all that. But um I love it. The book is called Divine Patterns. Roger Connors is my guest. You know, three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I'll ask those of you now. The first question is, is do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? I'm serving in a stake presidency in a uh, young single adult stake in Provo. If you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Hmm, That's a good question. Probably teaching gospel doctrine. Is there a particular part of gospel doctrine that you would teach uh, a subject that you feel extra passionate about within gospel doctrine? I love teaching the doctrine and covenants yeah. and the old Testament either. I love the, both of them, but yeah, it's a great calling. Uh, and then the final question that we ask everyone, we also, we ask you to interpret it however you may, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? Oh, that has to be, that has to be prayer. The power of prayers is, is has been uh, revealed to me on so many occasions. I would be lost without it. Roger, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Brother Brent, Miracles, I Told You So, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast. We'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the cultural hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat on the back 